0: Explaining Ukraine. In our new series Around Ukraine, we analyze the international context of the current Russian invasion of Ukraine to understand how it can influence Ukraine's resistance and resilience. In this episode, we talk about the decision by Ukraine's allies to supply the country with modern tanks and the prospects of further arms supplies. Also we talk about the end of the Zeman's era in the Czech Republic and increasing Iranian engagement into the Russia's axis of authoritarianism. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My guest is Maxim Panchenko, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine, brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com ukraineworld You can also support our humanitarian trips to the frontline areas on PayPal, ukraine.resistinggmail.com, ukraine.resistinggmail.com.
1: Hello, Maxim. Welcome back to this podcast. It's been a long time that we didn't talk.
2: Hello. Nice to be back.
1: Yeah, so um, our goal right now with Maxim will be to provide you with a regular overview of the international context uh, of Ukrainian developments of this war. We'll try and I will be asking Maxim, he's following this much more regularly than myself right now. We'll try to analyze um, presumably maybe every week what is happening on the
2: international context. So, our
1: key topics of today, can you
2: tell them? Well, of course, the biggest topic has been the decisions uh, adopted in at, at the Rammstein meeting and following that the breakthrough uh, with the decisions related to tanks. That, of course, is also the debate about the next steps, the aviation and long-range missiles, will that happen? Uh, of course, one of the topics is the elections that happened in the Czech Republic because that's a case study for broader patterns across the european continent that impact ukraine against the backdrop of the war and of course uh, this is uh, one of the most vociferous developments in the international arena uh, for the last couple of days is what happened between israel and iran and how that impacts Again, yeah the explosions
1: ukraine. in iran and interesting situation around it and when iran is yeah. blaming even ukraine for these explosions but let's stop uh, let's start with ramstein Uh, So the breakthrough with the tank supplies. And uh, I mean, the interpretation in Ukraine that I hear is that, look, uh, yeah, Germany was reluctant to supply tanks. Uh, We achieved a a breakthrough. And that means that probably the, the very big psychological red line is already crossed because, uh, for such countries as Germany, one of the big psychological red lines is that if we supply heavy weaponry, for example, tanks, uh, the idea that Germany will never, never again be in war with Russia, it kind of disappears because the, uh, the the participation is much bigger. And then, if this red line is crossed, well, this line is crossed. So maybe other lines will be crossed too. Ukraine is asking for uh, fighter jets Ukraine is asking for long-range missiles Ukraine is asking even for submarines do you have this impression as well
2: yes I have that impression as well but what we need to understand here is that a uh, taboo has been broken but now we have to swiftly uh evolve into thinking about the quantities and the pace at which they are going to be delivered to Ukraine. Because as much a a breakthrough as that may have been, and it was... uh, one does not need to dwell on that in that euphoria for too long, and to understand that time is of essence here. We still have uh, very much to do, and when it comes uh, to the topic that you touched upon, the this red line that uh, Germany uh, finally crossed and the hard time Germany had crossing it, I think that. Um, the world and Germany needs to understand that uh, once again the understanding of that ra- uh, red line in the first place uh, had a very basic flaw. Because somehow it went down in uh, Germany's uh, historical memory as the impossibility for its equipment to uh, to war with Russia once again. But somehow lines had been blurred. So, uh, blurred. Somehow Uh, Germans, uh, as good as their intentions are, uh, have forgotten that Russia, for them, in historical terms, is a euphemism for the USSR. And basically, Germany had occupied, uh, during the Second World War, the entirety of Ukraine and only a part of Russia. So it would also be a moral thing to to help Ukraine. This is a very basic thing. I'm not, you know, uh, inventing a wheel here in saying in articulating that, but still it needs to be understood because that can be a relief to those who still hesitate whether Germany did the right thing. So I am telling them that yes, right, uh, Germany did the Russian uh, the right thing.
1: Yeah, indeed, uh, there are so many you know big psychological things about Germany. Uh, I think you you're absolutely right. This is something that we tend to forgot uh, to forget what uh, what the the lines of occupation of uh, Nazi Germany war in the Soviet Union and primarily they occupied Belarus, Baltic states and Ukraine and not not the territory of Russia, only very tiny percent of the territory of Car- exactly. the current Russian Federation was occupied and that means the Nazi war crimes, the, the killing of people, the Holocaust, the distro- destroyed villages, all this happened primarily on the territories of Ukraine and Russia, so oh, uh, Ukraine and Belarus. If we take uh, this, uh, the former Soviet Union, uh, so of course we might refer you to the classical work by Timothy Snyder, "Bloodlands," where he describes all that. But the second thing I think that there is something in the German uh, psychology is that uh, the country was so much, you know, uh, seeing the concept of leader and leadership. As a toxic concept, because the leader in Germany will be Führer, and uh, that it is it is afraid of of taking responsibility and taking the lead, and now only after so many countries are pushing Germany to 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 do that, it is kind of a now it is a a, a prisoner of of other wills. Uh, Germany is like thinking of itself as a round table. So, so we will be the round table, we will not be the leader, we will be the round table. And when the collective mm-hmm. collective idea, collective uh, consensus is born, then Germany is following. It's not not leading, but following. And it's also a, an interesting thing, and it's an interesting shift. I think it is probably also another extreme. Of course, it's it's very bad, we know all the times, uh, the times of fascism and Nazism—all all this voluntarism, where the concept of leader is taking a very, very bad uh, turn—but um, when you just renounce it totally, it's also bad because it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's, an, it leads to an, to an inaction, right?
2: Yes. And moreover, it needs to be embedded in the all-European context. Because one way or another, Germany, together with maybe France and a couple of other states, uh, is seen as uh, the leader of the European Union, as the heart of the European Union, the biggest economic power, the biggest political power. And in action like that the one you're referring to, uh, indeed, uh, is very telling about what the European Union is these days. Um, It is a very good thing that, on the other hand, uh, Brussels has been very unequivocal in its standing with regard to Ukraine, how much Brussels has done uh, to support Ukraine uh, and everything. But uh, Brussels is not everything. There are 27 capitals of member states. And Germany is uh, the one of the most powerful among them. And their uh, position is indicative. So yes, indeed, uh, I understand where the hesitance uh, comes from when it comes to Schultz, when it comes to Germany. But at the same time, there are uh, all too many reasons for Germany to still display leadership in the international arena.
1: Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the, this legacy of SPD, the Social Democratic Party, uh, it's it's not a very good thing right now for the European Union for for Germany for Ukraine because of this you know past dependency of thinking to to find bridges with Soviet Union with Russia etc o- okay uh, but uh, I think you're right in saying that look it's not only about uh, about the uh the the types of arms it's also about the quantity because we understand that Russians still have thousands of tanks okay they they can be already very old one. I don't know if you've seen the news that they are now buying the tanks from Laos, which were produced in nineteen forty four so it, it really the tanks from the second world war but there is still very big number of them, and they can shoot they still have lots of lots of other armaments and the news that we are getting from the front line and the when we talk to soldiers uh, in, in Eastern Ukraine, uh, basically there should be no illusion that Russia is ready for even bigger war, sending bigger number of troops, bigger number of soldiers, bigger number of ammunition. And, and it's preparing for the war of exhaustion, for a long war, Whose aim is to exhaust Ukraine, is to exhaust the West, is 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 to exhaust everybody, and, and we should understand. I think one of very important, I know, stereotypes is that okay, you can send certain dozens of high modern tanks, but it doesn't. It's not a magic pill. It it it's not something that will solve uh, uh, the, the, the situation or will make a breakthrough in the war.
2: Yes, and I have two points to comment on that. First point is that uh, indeed maybe uh, it's not that Ukrainian military have too many too little tanks. Uh, before the war, I think we had some eight to nine hundred tanks. and compared to conventional European armies, that's not too little. The problem is putting things into perspective. The problem is that at least by quantities, as it turned out, not by qualities, but by quantities, Russian army indeed is one of the largest and most powerful in the world. So we need to face off with them, uh, which is why we need more tanks. And even 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 so, even notwithstanding the fact that Russia reportedly, according to statistics, has some ten to 12,000 tanks, I believe, of course, included the ones that you say, like the 1944 produced and everything, but still, they can shoot, as you rightfully said. Uh, but uh, so Ukraine still, even against the backdrop of that, uh, is asking for three to five hundred tanks from the West, as uh, President Zelensky said in his recent interview to uh, Sky News. So uh, that indeed is crucial for the next uh, for the next stage of the war. Which brings me to my next second point: is that uh, we do not have any illusion that we're not going to be given an equal amount of tanks, like the same. Ten to 12,000 tanks. So I think it is safe to say at this point of the war that um, Ukraine's bet, and it should be the West's bet too, I think, uh, is to uh, try to uh, make up for the quantity that Russia has with the quality of Western uh, equipment. This is something that we have already uh, somewhere uh, succeeded, like, for instance, with HIMARS. We have this long hand that uh, uh, helps us in certain but very crucial episodes, and when it com- comes to uh, to tanks and to APVs, etc., etc. Uh, again, their uh, quality is crucial. For instance, if you take the characteristics of Western tanks, I I, I am afraid to be uh, to err here, but I think this is about Abramses uh, that they are that the the range of their shooting is, I think, by a third or by half, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, longer than that of Russian tanks, which means that uh, Abramses are basically in the blind spot in the battlefield of Russian tanks. They can shoot Russian tanks and destroy Russian tanks, while Russian ones cannot reach Abramses. So that's an example of the quantitative things we need. Uh so that's my second point. Uh, we try to make up for the quantity with the quality and that's where we that's what we're pursuing when we continue the discussion about uh, for instance, fighter jets, why those need to be Western fighter jets the F16s. Or the long-range missiles, which will help us reach into Russian territory. Uh, yeah, I
1: think I think there is a um, this taboo, which I which I think which I see in the Western discussions that Ukraine cannot uh, actually target uh, the targets mm-hmm. of, uh, on the Russian territory. I think we should also cross this taboo finally because. Uh, well, if there is an accumulation of armaments, of troops in the Russian territory, they are not dispersed, they are not distributed, there is no chance, uh, there is the best way to target them on the Russian territory. And it's already happening. Yes, We like it or not, this, this is already happening. Okay, so um, just to add that the perspective here in Ukraine is that Russia is preparing for a long war. It is accumulating resources, and therefore Ukraine should be accumulating resources. I think we are kind of in a different in a different mood than we were, like in September or, or November, when we have seen a, a very quick Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, doesn't mean that uh, we will not see such counteroffensive in the future, but uh, a scenario of a long war is also possible. Mm-hmm. Let's turn to uh, our neighbors, and you mentioned this in the introduction, the uh, e- elections in the Czech Republic. Uh, quite interesting, and I would say quite positive result for the Czech society, which was kind of a also hostage to this long reign of uh, Mr. Miller Zeman, who also had sympathies with Moscow, with Kremlin, and uh, in some ways was a kind of a Orbán light version in Czech Republic. Um, can you tell us uh, about the results of the Czech election?
2: Yes, so basically uh, there are some names to drop here, so the standoff uh, was uh, between uh, Petro Pavel, who became the winner of the election, and uh, Andrej Babiš, who previously had been the Prime Minister under the Mures administration, Muir Zeman administration. And, uh, so basically, the standoff between these two uh, these two politicians was the standoff between the camp of the Orbán-like administration to be, so to say, because Babish would be very similar to uh, to Orbán in his view of uh, well, his views of how erroneous the European politics is with regard to Russia.
1: Yeah, this is all in the line of this Kremlinization yes. of Europe. Yes,
2: say. yes. And of course, the Central Europe is the weak spot because it is affected the most with, the, you know, these sanctions against Russia, etc., etc. Uh, and the second camp is the one led by Peter Pavel, who, uh, first of all, has an impeccable record as a politician and more importantly, as a military man who was the uh, head of the, the, the leader of the, Czech army, and who also then went to be the head of the military command of NATO. Uh, and in political terms, he is liberal. He is pro-Western, uh, he defends Western values, and more, more importantly for Ukraine in this context, he is totally pro-Ukrainian in this war. And so um, what I'm driving at is that his uh, victory in Czech Republic is not only a, um, a good, Case a good outcome in a specific country for Ukraine, but also it is a turning point for the entire Central Europe because risks have been around in different countries in uh, in Central Europe, not only in uh, in the Czech Republic. There are uh, developments in Slovakia. There is this long-standing, never-ending story in uh, Hungary. So indeed, we were at risk of having the eastern flank of the EU uh, further. to be be further weakened uh, with respect to the support of Ukraine. And this did not happen. So this is the turning point that we hope that things will go upwards for Ukraine.
1: Unfortunately, this this dream of Milan Kundera about kind of a liberal, multicultural, central Europe is no longer there. It it has disappeared. So the risk is really that... Kremlinization of Central Europe is, is possible and you're right that Orbán is not a, not the only uh, not the only figure here and uh, maybe uh, this election will put an end to this quite quite a long history of uh, certain Euroscepticism of the Czech president starting from Václav Klaus and going to Miloš Zeman so let's let's also follow this on the positive side, we can say that Czech Republic is also helping Ukraine a lot and, by the way, Ukrainian soldiers, many Ukrainian soldiers uh, are being in, uh, uh, trained, including in Czech Republic, yes. and some of my friends just right now are in Czech Republic, some of them my friends from the front line. Next topic is the explosions in Iran. So i don't know how you interpret what is happening i kind of see how and maybe it's inevitable and this is something that ukrainians were saying to the west also for from the very beginning of this war that uh, unfortunately this war will spill over because we are in the globalization and everything is connected to everything and uh russia is going in islands with iran Ukrainians are suffering from the this drones fight every week. Today, before this podcast, we also had the air alert and uh, every week we have either missile attacks or drone attacks uh, or uh, both. And the, the drones are the Iranian drones, the Shahed drones. Iran denies that it is supplying drones, kamikaze drones to Russia. But unfortunately, what we see that Russia is attacking Ukraine with these um, Iranian drones, and of course, it's it's a big uh, it's a big challenge also for Israel. And uh, Iran is blaming Israel for attacking its military production facilities. But maybe you can tell them more.
2: Well, the way I see it, and the analytics I have been acquainted with, uh, says that. Uh this is more of a bilateral story between Israel and Iran. This is more about their regional security and uh, this being an episode of you know this long-standing standoff uh, security-wise uh, between Israel and Iran. But an important thing for Ukraine here is that Iran is being brought once again into the objective focus of international politics. Because now, yes, it was mentioned in context of the Russian aggression against Ukraine, but again, the main perpetrator, perpetrator here is russia so everything well, everybody is blaming russia etc etc iran is just somewhere you know is marginalized in this story even though badly marginalized i mean in, as a as a villain but uh, when it comes to this regional standoff in the middle east um the world the world's attention is being drawn to it as the center of in fact, many security problems, starting with the nuclear program uh, that was killed. I mean, the the agreement that was between the, uh, between Iran and the West that was killed, and the nuclear problem is God knows where these days. And uh, Israel and Syria and Iran's proxies in the Middle East, like Lebanon and Syria again. Uh, so, as I said, Iran is now being brought into more focus into the focus of a bigger amount of problems that he creates in the Middle East. And this is going to be, presumably, a bigger discussion about what needs to be done about Iran, how it needs to be tackled. And that, by consequence, is good for Ukraine. Uh, because if uh, even if there is no direct military confrontation with Iran, uh, I mean, by the West, still, if Iran feels that it is under the incrementally growing pressure from the world, that you should not be that perpetrator. You should not do that. So maybe Iran is going to be a little bit more checked.
1: Well, this is one of the option. Another option is, of course, the the collapse of the Iranian regime. Uh, But another option is the collapse of the Russian regime, which is still a probability, but we still don't see how it might happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, another option can be that Iran is getting more and more radicalized and it's it's getting it's considering Russia as the key factor to develop its nuclear program so we will have increasingly the Russian Iranian alliance and that means that again the interpretation look during the covid time i saw many interpretations from the western scholars that look the difference between the the dichotomy between democracies and autocracies no longer work because we see that different countries cope in a different way with COVID. Uh, COVID some democracies cope well, others cope not so well. Some autocracies cope well, others not so well, etc. So we were entering kind of a world of you know fluid identities when it was no longer sure that democracy is a good thing compared to autocracy. Mm-hmm and i think now we increasingly see that there is a, another poll against the free world and it is organized by russia it, it is uh, it is trying to bring iran it is trying to bring north korea it was of course its dream is to bring china on its side but it's it's i would say it's failing in this uh, up, to, up to this moment but uh, this is crystallizing in this way. And of course the role of Israel is is important because Israel is afraid that Russia will supply nuclear technologies to Iran and therefore its stance towards the Russian invasion of Ukraine was so ambiguous, but as we can see probably, well, it, it sees that there is an, a new alliance, al- maybe not new, but new old alliance between uh, Iran and, and, and Russia is is developing and, and crystallizing. Okay, next topic is China. Uh, and uh, what we can say about US-China relations and how they're influencing Ukraine.
2: Well, the biggest news break about the US-China relations, uh, or rather to say just US and China, not about their relations, is that there have been some statements recently during the week um, by several high-ranking officials or military officials in the United States, that the war is basically imminent between uh, China and the U.S. in a couple of years' time. And this uh, the way it relates to Ukrainian situation is um, that it puts kind of a clock on uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Because, first of all, we understand that uh, we have limited time to bring this story to an end. And that's, once again, the reference to what we talk. about talked earlier about the need not to protect this war and how the West is coming to realize that uh, just now. So that's one thing. Another thing, uh, just in an attempt to embed it into a broader context, is that uh, 2024 is going to be uh, a year of of possible major political shifts because there are going to be either campaigns or elections. Or both uh, across uh, Europe and in the United States, uh, the a new administration may emerge in the United States. We are on our way to elect the new European Commission, which, if I'm not mistaken, is going to become incumbent by the in December 2024. And again, if uh, the election in the in the European Union shows that populists are uh, sorry for the repetition, popular in a bigger amount of European countries that may impact of who's going to rule the European Union and how the support of Ukraine is going to, uh, to go. So what I'm saying, uh, switching from the topic of specifically U.S. and China to broader international trends, I think that what is happening in Ukraine has basically a timeline and a deadline that we should try to meet and that deadline is quite short for, you know,
1: but at the same time, Russia is wanting a long war. So we, we should also keep that in mind. Yeah. And the question is whether China really wants a war with, with the United States. We have, we have some other signals from China saying that China is seeking more kind of compromise relations with America. It doesn't, doesn't really, maybe doesn't really want a, a major conflict. And uh, it's, it's interesting that the West is, well, we understand that this name, the West, is quite ambiguous, but uh, there is maybe some red line also is being crossed. This this fear of a major confrontation, which is gradually crossed because there is a major confrontation with Russia, and maybe kind of a, we see that United States, NATO. West, suffered from a major military defeats in the past decades. Uh, we can quote Iraq, we can quote Syria or non-involvement in, in, in Syria and, of course, Afghanistan. And Ukraine is a possible country which, on behalf of the West and with the help of the West, can win against a major, uh, major threat. Mm-hmm. Mm, and maybe China is not so confident. So maybe China, as Russia, was thinking that the, the West is much weaker then it appears now, much weaker in solidarity, much weaker economically, much weaker military. So we will see, of course, Ukraine's interest is to get China at least neutral in this conflict
2: yes that's that's a good point about how how China may have visioned uh, the West, the collective West, so to say.
1: And maybe last point is the Russian uh Russian diplomacy in the so-called global south. Lavrov is continuing its travels in
2: Africa. What do you think what is the goal of them? Uh I think that the, by this point in time I think that Russia's bet on the third, third uh, world every time Russia becomes ostracized is something is no news. It is something quite uh usual by this time. Uh but still no less worrying. Uh because we see that Lavrov has just uh, made a tournée, so to say, a tour through uh, through African countries, and some of them are major uh, economic powers, like, for instance, South Africa, and it also uh, is one of Russia's standing uh, partners within the BRICS forum. The BRICS format. There has been, you know, a different kind of criticism about how robust this uh, format is. In different years, but uh, I think still that this is like the approximation between these two countries is uh, quite a big risk because South Africa is a big um, economic player. It is a big political player. It is one of the key countries for Ukrainian diplomacy in uh, in Africa, and it is also one of the keys, as you said, to the global South. Uh, so the conclusion here is that the fact that Russia still manages to find these powerful uh, allies, maybe not in the war, South Africa is not embroiled in the war with Ukraine, but, you know, that these countries still talk to Russia, do business as usual, see no problem shaking hands with people who are killing you know, other people in Ukraine, this is worrisome, because this demonstrates how the world is not about Russia on the one side and the West on the other side.
1: Yeah, there is a big (coughs) part of the world which is actually the biggest in terms of population, (coughs) which is staying aside and uh, considering this war as another imperial or colonial war from both sides. And uh, what is dangerous for us, for Ukrainians, is that, of course, Russia is trying to kind of uh, work with these countries in terms of UN because Russia is afraid of, maybe afraid of, the, the possibilities of uh, what, what Ukraine is now promoting, excluding Russia from the uh, Security Council of the United Nations. And um, however utopian this idea might seem today, well, everything can happen actually. And uh, the scenario of, of this also, of course, will depend on China, but will also depend on, on many other countries, which are, let's say, which are voting neutral right now, which abstain. Mm-hmm. In the yes. in the in the in the votes of the General Assembly of the United Nations, therefore Russia is working there. Ukraine is much less working there. Let's 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 say this in, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, and this oh, this is of course uh, quite a significant problem. So this was a podcast explaining Ukraine. Our new series about the international context. Of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. My name is Vladimir Yarmolk, I'm chief editor of Ukraine World. I was joined by Maxim Panchen, co journalist and analyst at Ukraine World and interne Ukraine. Uh, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreoncom Ukraine World. You can also support our volunteer humanitarian trips to the east and south of Ukraine on PayPal, ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.